0: In 2016, a United Nations report found the UK government responsible for grave and systematic violations of disabled people's rights. Ellen Clifford, a disabled activist, has been at the heart of the resistance against the War on Disabled People for over 20 years. She currently serves on the National Steering Group for Disabled People Against Cuts and is the author of The War on Disabled People, Capitalism, Welfare, and the Making of a Human Catastrophe. At the time of airing, the War on Disabled People has just been shortlisted for the Bread and Roses Award for Radical Publishing. In part one of this episode, we'll unpack the history surrounding the War on Disabled People, the relationship between disability and capitalism, the meaning and useful applications of the social model of disability, and how COVID-19 has exacerbated the violent conditions of the austerity state. Take a listen. Welcome to the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Morowski, and today I'm speaking with Ellen Clifford, author of The War on Disabled People. Uh, thanks for being on the show, Ellen. Thank you for having me. So the title of your book, The War on Disabled People, is very striking. Uh, can you explain like, how you landed on that and explain what exactly that war is
1: I've been trying to remember when I first heard that term, the war on disabled people, it it refers to a programme of government legislation and policy measures enacted from 2010 onwards, which had a severe and disproportionate adverse impact on On disabled people, and and it was a, a term that was used a lot to try and describe what was happening, but to try and get across to other members of the public the severity of what was happening to disabled people. I know there's a campaigner in Manchester who came up with the term democide, actually, which is what he uses instead to refer to the same episode in disabled people's history. And by that, he's referring to the fact that the impact of many of those policies was death and suicides for many disabled people. So disabled people over this period really did feel under attack from their own government. And I can't remember who first used the term, but it's been quite commonly used within disabled people's circles, certainly since, I'd say, the early years of the coalition government. So it just naturally seemed like the phrase that should be the title for the book.
0: Right. And and so you bring up the fact that so many people felt attacked by their own government. And I think implicit in that is that and you even mentioned in your book that we can't really understand the current state of of disability rights without understanding the relationship between disability and and capitalism. Can you kind of discuss what that relationship is?
1: Yes, and I'll just say that although other people have covered the same episode, for example, the disabled journalist Frances Ryan, her book Crippled, deals with the same period of time. But where mine differs is that it puts it within that context, exactly as you say, of the the longer history of disabled people and the relationship between disability and capitalism and argues that it's not a war that is specific only to this period, but it's kind of ongoing for as long. As there has been capitalism. So the category of disability didn't actually exist before the rise of capitalism. There were people with different impairments, different illnesses who lived within their communities and their experiences were different depending on what impairment or illness it had and and specific to the cultural and historical period they were in but the category as such didn't exist and that's because of the way that people quite often so for example through feudal society I'm not saying things were brilliant for, for people with impairments but People laboured more within a family unit and people would take on tasks depending upon their abilities. Whereas under capitalism, we had the move to the towns and to the standardisation of labour. And people who didn't fit within the standards required of the workers were then, they then, the society needed to find something to do with them. And that's when we started having the asylums built to house people. And the book kind of, in chapter three, goes through the succession of, if you like, solutions that governments have come up with for, for what to do with this unproductive element within society and argues that governments will always try to minimise the amount of cost that is spent on support and housing or warehousing for this group of people because we're not seen as fulfilling the interests of profit, essentially, because we can't be as productive as, as other members of society. Right. I guess it all
0: boils down to this idea of uh, productivity, that's really fascinating to me. I didn't actually know that the category of disability was produced through the history of capitalism, yeah. but that actually makes so much sense.
1: For disabled people, uh, particularly in the uh, disabled people's movement in Britain, we specifically talk of ourselves as disabled people, not people with disabilities, because we follow what's known as the social model of disability, which was developed by disabled people themselves, involved in the independent living movement, when disabled people with physical impairments campaigned to be able to move out of the segregated institutions they were forced to live in, and to to become part of society, living alongside non-disabled people and having employment, etc. And the idea of the social model of disability is that recognises the distinction between the impairments, illnesses, different bodily conditions that people have and disability and by disability what we mean there is the layer of oppression which is placed on top of our il- impairment and illnesses and what's always interesting to me is that when first of all when disabled people discover the social model of disability it's, it's always a light bulb moment and you can almost literally sometimes see people throwing off years of internalized oppression whereby they felt like a burden on their families and on society and suddenly it clicks in their head and they feel Actually, no. There's nothing wrong with me. Society that needs to change and, and has the problem. But secondly, as well, it always interests me that disabled people themselves can very clearly see the distinction between impairment and disability, because you know everyone will have their own examples whereby actually the most frustrating and difficult. Barriers in their day-to-day lives are socially imposed. It's not due to and impairments can, you know, obviously involve a considerable amount of pain or or distress. So, for example, I live with severe and enduring mental distress. But you do understand in your own head a difference between that and then the what you feel are the unnecessary additional barriers that are placed in your way. For example, through inflexible working conditions, or you know, if you're a wheelchair user, failure to put lifts in stations. and and drop curbs, etc.
0: Right. I just want to go back to this point, this sort of distinction between disability-first language versus person-first. And so you're saying that people have sort of, in your movement, have problematized the idea of people with disabilities. It it doesn't
1: really, yeah, it doesn't really make sense from a social model perspective because we're people with impairments or illnesses, but we are disabled by society.
0: Okay, that's really interesting. But so in terms of the social model of disability, this idea that there are barriers that are preventing disabled people from living independently. I mean, do these barriers hinder your activism efforts? And when act- when activism sort of itself requires a certain level of independence, or does that not factor in for you?
1: So yeah, I'll answer that in two parts. Um, first of all, just coming to use of the term independence. It's always a very key term for disabled people. So what we understand by independent living is not doing things for ourselves, Independent living to us is having the same chances as everyone else to participate in society on an equal level with other people. And that might be by receiving support from other people. The key thing there isn't whether you do it yourself or you have support from another person, it's about the amount of autonomy that you have in your own life, as that is frequently one of the things that holds disabled people back from having the same life chances as other people. Barriers to independent living definitely do impact on people's activism. And over recent years and over this this period, since, since 2010, we've definitely seen barriers to participation in activism growing through, well, numerous, numerous of the measures, but for example, increasing cuts to the social care support that people receive. So if people are literally trapped within their own homes and unable even to have enough support for meeting their own needs, basic needs such as washing and eating and accessing the toilet, not even having support to check your emails and, you know, even just, you know, click on a a petition for a cause that you believe in, let alone get out to a protest. And that certainly is a, a barrier for people with learning difficulties. I have many politicized friends with learning difficulties, but for those that live in group homes, it can be much more difficult because there's... Usually understaffing in those places, which means that people aren't able to make individual choices about what they do. It has to be, if they're going out, then it might have to be within the context of a group trip. So an individual wanting to go on a protest, for example, you know, wouldn't be able to make their own choices to do that. And then there's also, of course, the financial pressures because of the benefit changes. And again, that restricts people's ability to travel to protests. as well as wanting technology to go online. But at the same time, I suppose, partly in response to that, as well as uh, to technological developments, new, as I call it in the book, kind of new new wave disabled people's activism has relied a lot more on social media. And that's actually, the positive of that is that it's opened up activism to groups or people with particular impairments who are unable to leave their homes who were more excluded before. So I'd say that the disabled people's movement as a consequence has become more inclusive, which for me can only be a good thing. But for example, I'm on the National Steering Group for Disabled People Against Cuts. And one of our key members of the steering group and who's active every day um, is unable to leave his house um, due to severe agoraphobia. But he's as much of a, a member as any of us. I mean, he does feel left out when he's not able to come on protests, but we've actually been working for a number of years with some students who approached us from the Royal College of Arts and they're developing what they call the, the power tool, which kind of buddies up people who are there using their mobile phone technology and an app they've developed with people at home. So we're constantly looking at ways of trying to, to overcome those barriers, barriers which existed you know, before 2010, but which have certainly certainly got worse.
0: Yeah, there's quite a lot there to unpick. I mean, on the one hand, it's, I don't know, it's interesting to have the conversation about social media, the relationship between social media and activism in general, because I've also heard people sort of problematize the new forms of activism that are happening online because it feels performative or it feels like that it, it's not, yeah, that it's it's sort of replacing some of the organizing the sort of sub- substantive organizing that happened in the past but at the same time i hear what you're saying that this is it can only serve to be more inclusive for disabled people so yeah. i don't know are those considerations something that gets discussed a lot
1: yeah and i would agree with that that critique that sees it as replacing perhaps more dynamic and effective forms of protest but for us it's been i'd say entirely positive in in Enabling people who couldn't participate in it before to be able to. But because for disabled people, the stakes have been so high since 2010, we've never stopped doing absolutely everything we possibly could because it's been such desperate times when people are left with literally no income at all. And and of course part of what happens to people in that situation is they're literally shocked that this could be happening in the sixth richest country in the world. I mean this has been happening for over a decade now, but still when it first happens to people, when they first find that there actually isn't a social safety net that they assumed was there, it can be very upsetting for people. And Our organisations, disabled people's organisations, but also voluntary sector, community organisations, charities have just been so overwhelmed by demand because they're being cut. They've experienced cuts. A lot of those services don't exist anymore. A lot of legal advice centres, for example, have closed as a direct result of the legal aid and (laughs) legal aid policing sentencing I can't remember LASBO LASBO what that stands for Uh, that legislative that piece of legislation has led to you know closure of, of those kinds of services so it's what most people hadn't seen in, in our lifetimes was where people have had everything taken away from them and there's actually nowhere to signpost them. There's no one to help. There's no way that you yourself can help everyone in that situation. People working in frontline organizations just commonly over the last decade just have people every day trying to find, trying to get help in tears on the phone, absolutely desperate. about. Well, what they're going to do and through Disabled People Against Cuts, we've tried to give people hope that you can kind of get involved that you can get your voice heard and the peer support has helped individuals but we've had individuals say if we hadn't joined Deepak then you know we would have been one of those who'd seen no no other option but to kill ourselves and I think so so what I'm saying is because of that level of desperation and our stark awareness of it Disabled campaigners have literally done everything we can to try and raise awareness. And so on the one hand, that's involved legal challenges. And for example, we triggered an unprecedented investigation that the United Nations carried out. And in that they made a finding that the UK government was responsible of grave and systematic violations of of disabled people's rights. They, they weren't saying things are worse here for disabled people than in other countries in, in the developing world, for example, where they have no disability benefits, but what was of such concern was the way in which things were moving so dramatically backwards for disabled people, the scale and depth of, of regression as a result of deliberate government policy. So and that involved getting that investigation Involve collecting lots of information, writing reports. But, but then on the other hand, what, what I think disabled people are against. To- cuts in particular is known for, is our, is our direct actions. Actually, at times when, for example, we would have hoped that other allies in the anti-austerity movement and the trade union movement would have been taking more action, you know, Deepak's always gone out there and tried to make an impact through what we are able to do with, you know, street protests and direct actions. So we've never, we've never a long way of saying in answer to your question, that we've never allowed the social media side to get in the way or, or stop that kind of activism. We've only used it to enhance it.
0: No, I, I hear what you're saying. To step back a bit and give a little bit of historic context, I mean, I know that you're you're sort of talking about austerity at large, but you mentioned 2010 and the formation of Disabled People Against Cuts. So, I mean, for people who are listening who might not know, That sort of history? Could you unpack the sort of systematic rollback of benefits that happened in the UK at that time?
1: Yeah, so the coalition government came into power in 2010, and the Conservatives, the Tories, were the leading partners there, and they came in with a manifesto pledge to cut welfare by, I I can't remember the exact figure, around 17 billion, which was a lot of money, and disabled people were very concerned about that, obviously, at the spring budget, the first budget that the new chancellor of the Exchequer George Osborne gave, he committed to cutting the disability living allowance budget by 20% um, through replacing it with another benefit, personal independence payment, which they intended to be harder to get. Now at that time, by the government's own figures, Disability Living Allowance, DLA, benefit fraud was no more than 0.5%, yet he was cutting the budget by 20%. So immediately that sent alarm bells ringing that disabled people who you know, weren't fraudsters, uh, they you know, were genuinely disabled, were going to have their benefits taken away from them. And that was obviously very alarming because disabled people had so little to begin with. In research in 2008, showed that disabled people were twice as likely to live in poverty as non-disabled people. So we were aware that we were going to see a situation where people who virtually had nothing were going to have that virtually bit completely taken away and were just going to be left with absolutely nothing. And now figures from 2018 and the Equality and Human Rights Commission um, showed that disabled people are now three times more likely to live in severe material deprivation than non-disabled people. It was a, a combination of measures, so it wasn't just welfare reform although that was definitely a big element of it, but also the what the government termed austerity was being used to make huge cuts to local government budgets. And those local authorities, one of their key functions is to provide social care support for disabled people. So by slashing their budgets, those cuts were then passed down to individual disabled people. And we've seen... We have been in a social care funding crisis for for many, many years now as a result of that and how that translates in individuals' lives is a situation I spoke about earlier where people are left for hours and hours and hours of of their lives without any form of support. And these are people who in the 1990s, say, would have been given 24-7 support, some of them. That just does not exist anymore. Many local authorities have completely stopped giving any form of overnight care to people so that means people who aren't incontinent but who do need physical support to use the toilet being left in incontinence pads um being left so a friend of mine isn't you know he's not able to scratch his nose himself so if he doesn't have support overnight and he has an itchy nose that's going to be itchy throughout the night and that sounds like a small thing but can you imagine how frustrating living like that is and it, without support overnight it means that you don't have you don't have a choice what time you go to bed you have to go to bed when your last care visit comes Um, You're not able to do anything until someone comes and gets you in the morning. So it's taken away any form of quality of life that, that people had. And the cuts have just been in every single area of disabled people's lives. And that's because the the cuts were in every area of, well, (laughs) and not defence spending and the Treasury budget didn't go down during the coalition years, but, you know, areas such as housing, etc. And education, of course, as well. And because disabled people are statistically more reliant on support from the state, it just meant that people were experiencing cuts in every area of their lives and what the government Consistently refused to do is to carry out what we were asking for, which was a cumulative impact assessment, which could have shown the impact of certain people, i.e., disabled people, experiencing all those multiple cuts all at the same time. Um, They failed to do that. Other people tried to do their their own, but obviously without the same kind of access to data and resources as the government. Uh, The Centre for Welfare Reform, which is community based think tank carried their own out in 2013 and found that disabled people were nine times harder hit by the cuts than non-disabled people. And for those disabled people using social care support, that rose to 19 times harder than other people. And then the Equality and Human Rights Commission did their own, found similarly, that found that the more disabled you were, the more the harder you'd hit been hit by the cuts and they also did so they looked at the cumulative impact of tax and welfare reform changes since 2010 but they also carried out a public spending analysis and i think the main point to take from that is that that really proved that the cuts were a political choice not a necessity in that england had far worse cuts to things like social care services, public services, the cuts here were far worse than in Wales and Scotland. And that was obviously that shows the the role of governments and the, their decisions within that. So things got difficult after 2010, but then I think what really, what really upset people is that the, the Tories kept getting re-elected. 2015, they were elected with a manifesto that pledged to cut a further $15 billion from the welfare budget, and people were in disbelief about what they were experiencing already, and then they get re-elected with that. It was, it was incredibly difficult for people. And whilst the, the changes may have slowed down, but there's still things that were introduced through, for example, the Welfare Reform and Work Act that came in in 2016 as part of fulfilling the Tories Manifesto pledges. So that covered things like the, the rollout of universal credit and, and taking that further. And that's still, that's still happening. So although I think Theresa May, when she was prime minister, said austerity's over, but there was never any reversal of the policies and the legislation that are continue to cause so much harm and and some of these policies are are still being rolled out now so nothing has changed it's only got worse and continue to get worse
0: yeah and i can imagine that It's been somewhat exacerbated by the difficulties of the pandemic, even so.
1: The pandemic, yes. Uh, Disabled people say we thought things were bad under austerity and welfare reform and then COVID came along. And of course, disabled people have been disproportionately hit by that as well. At least 60% of COVID-related deaths in the UK are disabled people percent, um, And that's a minimum. That's an absolute minimum because of the lack of data. So the Office for National Statistics has been having to use the 2011 census information and disability prevalence was lower then so now disabled people are 21% of the uk population whereas back in 2011 we were only 18% so you know some of those people who weren't disabled according to that the, the census data in 2011 would have been by now so that's the true statistic is is higher than that but but that doesn't account for the additional deaths as well from people not having access to the ongoing treatment health treatments that they would need and dis- disabled people obviously are more likely to have health conditions where they should have been you know accessing hospitals throughout the pandemic so within disabled people against Cuts of the core activists, and of course, just to put it in context, I mean, disabled people were used to our friends dying prematurely because of a mixture of impairment-related reasons, but also lack of equal access to the healthcare system. So we have lost a number of you know key activists since since 2010, but over half of those have been since January 2020, and only a couple of those have been from COVID. So I don't know when we're likely to see the figures, but I I suspect that there's been a lot of additional deaths that weren't directly down to COVID. So it's been a, a really terrible time. But I think what people have found most alarming is that there has been this narrative that disabled people's lives are dispensable. And that's been played out very publicly through government rhetoric, through the media, and repeated by people in the street, you know, why do we have to lock down? You know, we can afford to lose a few thousand of those people kind of ideas. Hostility against disabled people had been on the rise, and that had been inflamed by the government rhetoric repeated in the right-wing media that was used to justify welfare reform and, uh, and the cuts there'd been created this idea of you know, benefit scrounging and the public were given a false impression of the level of benefit fraud that exists. So, for example, Inclusion London, an organisation I, I used to work for, Commissioned some research from Glasgow University, and they did focus groups with members of the pu- members of the public. And this was back in the early years of the coalition government, and people actually thought that benefit fraud would be was as high as like seventy percent of the caseload. Whereas, as I said before, the figures were like 05 point five percent. But you know the. <laughs> TV programs devoted to benefits grounding, all these headlines in the newspapers about benefit cheats. It had created this impression and as a result people became very hostile in the street, even more hostile towards disabled people. It kind of allowed an unleashing of the negative attitudes people have towards disability. Um, So that was already an issue but it just took on a completely different dynamic under the pandemic whereby this became not the kind of thing that the majority of people would probably disapprove of those, you know, people being stopped in the in the street and being abused for being disabled. I, d- I think the majority of people would object to that. And yet it became seen as kind of a topic of reasonable discussion to discuss whether our lives were dispensable or not. And I, th- I think that's just been really, really hard for people to deal with emotionally.
0: Of course, of course. If you're already getting this idea of quality of life, the government has made it clear that they don't believe disabled people have a quality of life to begin with by making all these cuts in the first place. But also, I don't know, there was this whole conversation happening in the UK at the very beginning of the pandemic about herd immunity. And that sounded, that was just so absurd to me that... (laughs) People were willingly just saying, yeah, like, let's let thousands of people die. So, I mean, first of all, the terrible understanding of what herd immunity actually is. I was going to say,
1: absolutely, yes. It's terrible. You can't work without the vaccine or has never worked without the vaccine before. But yes, it does. It does look very much like. Johnson, at that time Cummings, though I believe he changed his mind, were embracing that idea. Um, Deepak's got a number of allies and friends among disabled people in Sweden, and that's been even worse there. And of course, the UK was trying to follow the Swedish model. During the first wave of the pandemic in Sweden, they'd similarly, in both the UK and Sweden, in order to protect health services and stop them being overwhelmed, they'd stopped disabled people being allowed access to treatment in sweden what that how that had looked was there were regional directives to care homes saying if anyone gets covid they can't go into hospital and then it because there wasn't the they didn't have the facilities to treat people with covid within those care homes they were being prescribed palliative care drugs which hastened their deaths and this was done without the family's consent or knowledge so that actually produced a national scandal. There was an outcry and that led eventually, it led to an investigation. And in December, um, the both the king of Sweden and the prime minister have basically said we got it wrong. But what I found interesting in the UK is that exactly that time when you were saying everyone's talking about herd immunity, we should be doing this. Look at brave Sweden. What are they doing? You know, they're keeping their economy going. Um, we we didn't hear in the British media hardly anything at all about the Corona Commission and their findings over there, and what Sweden's uh, experiment had actually, what it actually meant, the death toll that it meant. It meant younger people in schools. Being admitted to hospital and dying of COVID, so they definitely get it got it wrong. But our prime minister here definitely wanted to follow that model. He actually took advice from the chief epidemiologist in Sweden in uh, in September and decided to delay lockdown by a couple of weeks. The second lockdown. Um, following a briefing from him and a couple of others who were anti-lockdown. And that unquestionably cost thousands of lives, that decision. I don't know if you will have seen, but over the last week, it has emerged that apparently the prime minister here said that he would rather the bodies piled high by their thousands than have a third lockdown. So that attitude is very much still here. Wait, wait, Johnson said that? Yeah. Apparently there's a there's a briefing war at the moment between him and Dominic Cummings, his previous advisor, and it it's been leaked that apparently he said that. Yeah.
0: That's I fully believe it though. I mean, I fully believe it too. I would not put it past any Tory prime minister, (laughs) but Jesus.
1: Because if you look at the policies in terms of like the delays to lockdown and everything, that, you know, this was clearly something he was considering trading lives for the economy. But but I think what interests me is that actually it's presented as a binary choice. It's actually a false choice because I think what, well, in the book, it makes, I, I make the point that disability, the reality of disabled people's lives is still so hidden. People don't, you know, understand there's there's lots of myths and misperceptions. You know, for example, just the strongest example is just that a lot of people associate disability with wheelchair use when only 8% of disabled people, whatever, need to use a wheelchair. But I think that policymakers often guilty as as anyone of not really understanding disability because they don't care about it. But What that means is I don't think maybe that the government fully understood how many frontline workers are disabled people. So if you want to keep your economy going, you need those workers. And if they all contract COVID and die, (laughs) because frontline pay, there's so many low paid workers now, so much in work poverty. And of course, poverty and and disability go go hand in hand. So the low paid frontline workers are much more likely to have underlying health conditions that make them more at risk of COVID. So along with this bizarre idea of herd immunity they were going with, I mean, there was this idea that, well, you shut away the, the people who are kind of weak and vulnerable to the virus. But I think that they there must have been some kind of idea that those people, disabled people, if you like, are like a a discreet group in society who you can easily shut away from the rest of the community without understanding that you know disabled people are everywhere in society. We're workers, we're carers. People play important roles within their communities, volunteering and looking after. Especially now, you know, with how expensive childcare is, an older disabled relative it would be responsible for childcare, for key working parents so you couldn't just actually shut this group of people away keep them in their homes and then the rest of the economy could carry on so i think the whole thing was just completely well it was a complete disaster that cost many people their lives when they didn't need to die
0: no i mean i think that this is this is kind of manifesting in so many different ways across The world and it's just showing how like it's just capitalism rearing its ugly head and and revealing all of the, the giant flaws in our social safety. And it's, as you said, the majority of people that are driving our economy are the same people that rely, tend to rely most on, on government benefits or are the most erased by government. In the case of Amer- in the U.S., all of our quote unquote essential workers were dying at disproportionate rates because, as you know, we don't have a national health care system. Yeah. So all these people without any real paid leave or any real benefits were forced to go into work and drive the economy. But we're dying like flies. I don't know. It just like and yeah. it just problematizes the whole idea of like, quote unquote, it's just so egregious that they would be called essential workers and then be, be treated like that
1: yes i it's been a big source of unhappiness over here that the government were trying not to give healthcare workers pay rise they were going to try and limit them to the to the 1% the rest of the public sector was getting but of course in social care those are frontline workers who've been very at risk as well and the the pay and the conditions in the among the social care w- workforce is just absolutely appalling but I think that's very much linked to the lack of value that are placed on the lives of the people they they're supporting, you know disabled and, and older people who aren't seem to have a, a high value use in society in terms of the interest of profit.